You are listening to the DOCUS podcast, brought to you by the Irish support agency New South Wales, a podcast designed to promote the mental health and well-being of the Irish community in Australia. Each month, we will explore a different aspect of mental health and well-being, guided by the latest evidence and facilitated by an expert in the field. Please support us by liking, subscribing and sharing. Enjoy the episode. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to November's episode of our DOCUS webinar and podcast series. My name is Una, and I am on the Mental Health and Wellbeing Working Group of the Irish Support Agency. Before we get started, I would like to acknowledge that I am hosting this webinar from the lands of the Camaragal people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians on the various lands on which you all are watching. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. DOCUS will be brought to you usually on the first Monday of each month, with each session exploring a different aspect of health and well-being. All of our previous webinars can be found on the ISA YouTube channel, and we will soon be releasing these episodes in podcast format on Spotify. If you have any questions throughout the conversation, please feel free to pop them into the chat box, but we will also have some time for questions at the end. So tonight, with the help of our guests, we will be exploring supporting our loved ones through a crisis. Supporting our loved ones through a crisis is one of the most difficult things you'll ever have to do. And so often we talk it out alone. We do our best with the skills and knowledge we have, but often we're fumbling in the dark, unsure of whether we're on the right track, afraid of doing more harm than good. While most people have some intuition and the best of intentions, when it comes to caring for loved ones in crisis, most people could benefit from some upskilling provided by a mental health practitioner alongside a group of people going through a similar experience. And that's why we are here tonight. I am delighted to be joined by clinical psychologist, Emer McDermott, and our special guest, Sean Keenan, who is living through this experience. You're both very welcome and thank you for joining us. So let's dive right in. Emer, we'll start with you if we may. So obviously you're a, a clinical um, psychologist. Can you help us understand what we mean when we refer to a crisis? I, I suppose it's quite a broad term. Um, I suppose generally when we refer to crises, we mean a person's reaction to an event, whether that's like a physical illness, a mental illness, or even like a grief or a loss. Um, and it doesn't have to be something traumatic, whereas I think sometimes people have that perceived idea that it has to be something quite dramatic or traumatic. Um, but also it's how people end up coping and their inability maybe to problem solve or to use the coping skills that they have mm -hmm. to effectively manage that situation. Okay, great. Thank you so much. So the discussion tonight um, 
it, it can be applicable to, to most sort of crisis situations, um, what we're going to be discussing. So if, from your point of view, what would you advise a carer to be the first thing that they would do when trying to support someone? Well, I suppose it, trying to identify, are they in crises? Like what is going on for them? And generally that might take a little bit of time because they're trying to work out you know, has there been changes in their ability to cope, you know, whether that's in their sleep patterns, their coping mechanisms, are they relying on alcohol a lot more or drugs? Um, are there, is there changes in their like hygiene? Are they socializing? Are they avoiding going out and about and meeting friends or canceling plans all of the time? So kind of identifying when somebody is actually struggling um, or particularly maybe if somebody's really struggling with their mental health, it might be conversations around death or suicide or self-harm um, that start to alert the person closest to them that actually maybe they're not doing as well as they might think that they are. And sometimes that doesn't isn't apparent overnight or immediately. It might be over a little period of time where somebody is noticing actually they're really not themselves or what, you know, they're really more irritable or they're there's changes in work or they're not going to work or they're not going to school, depending on what age they are. Um, and it's kind of noticing those behaviors and then I suppose in terms of how to approach somebody or even bring it up with somebody um, it, it can be quite hard because you're trying to name something that maybe they're thinking they're getting on okay with or that they maybe they don't think they're struggling with um, and trying to be open with them but finding a time and a space that you can you know, maybe express your concerns. So not, you know, at a party or in a social gathering, but it might be where there's quiet time where it's just the two of you, it might be just going for a walk and trying to express what you've seen or what you've noticed. So I've noticed that you've stopped socializing or I've noticed that actually maybe you're you're drinking every night or you're going to the pub every night um, and more just expressing your concern to them. And so letting them know that, I've noticed something is different. Are you doing okay? Is there something going on? Do you want to talk about it? Um, and more just creating that kind of open kind of dialogue with them, even if they tell you that they think they're doing fine, it's still naming that you're seeing something is different. Something has changed. And I can imagine for some people, there would be quite a sense of anxiety around having that initial conversation because they don't know what the reaction is going to be mm -hmm. or, or, you know, um, how the other person is going to, to accept that information. So some people act, might actually try and avoid that for some time. Um, I mean, is, is sort of intervention or early on kind of, you know, what you would advise um how would you navigate that I suppose it is hard if somebody is not willing to acknowledge there's an issue it's it's very hard to do anything about it depending on what's happening for them but I suppose it would be say if it's a friend or a family member or depending on what's going on for them um it would just be continuously naming and supporting and it's kind of like I'm here if you do want to talk I have noticed these things and not shying away from it and kind of being like, I've had that conversation, therefore it's done, they're telling me they're fine. It's repeatedly saying, okay, I still think, you know, there's something going on there or 
you know, you've, you have, you've missed quite a lot of time from work and that's really unusual for you. You know, so you're just really reinforcing the fact that you're there. The conversation is still open, but also potentially if they don't want to talk about it with you, it might be saying, you know, signposting that whether it's other friends, other family members that they might feel more open to discuss it with, mm-hmm. that you're just laying out some of the avenues for them to take. Mm-hmm. OK. All right. Thanks, Emma. Sean, um, great to have you here with us this evening. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, can you tell us a little bit about um, your recent experience? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Emma. Um, Thanks for inviting me on to speak about this. Uh, it's not something I'm kind of used to, so yeah, hopefully it comes across okay. Um, mm-hmm. My partner is Martin. Uh, we both live in Sydney here, QG. Um, we've been here just over eight years. Uh, and last year, May 27th, 2021, she found lumps while we were on holiday. Um, we were away trying to celebrate, which would have been our second uh, wedding date, but was unfortunately cancelled with COVID. Um, so we took herself off, and during that holiday, she found lumps in her breast. Um, and yeah, everything just changed. It's been, what, around a year and a half now, maybe less. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, yeah, it was something that was never expecting to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, especially for a 29-year-old girl who looks after herself, um, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And do you remember when Martine found the lumps? Do you remember what that sort of initial feeling that you felt was? Uh, I'll, I'll never forget it. Um, obviously, you try and be as positive as you can at the time. We were on holiday, so... After she found the lot, she was just after having a shower, I think, and she was doing what girls do, put moisturizer on, letting it dry off, laying on the bed. I think she was just tickling herself or whatever. I was in having a shower myself, and she came in and just asked me to feel it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't like something, obviously, I'd never felt before. Yeah. You're in a relationship, and I've never felt it, so it was kind of a shock. Um, yeah, and... You just, you, I just had this feeling inside me mm-hmm. that something wasn't right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say on that, Martine being the positive person she is, she booked a helicopter ride for us that day. <laughs> it's like, right, we're going to forget about it. Um, and she's very get up and go and proactive. So she booked a helicopter ride. But just before that, she went on to uh, Hot Dog and booked an yeah. appointment, appointment with her GP for the Monday so this was the Saturday and she was booked in for the Monday you know so we already had that lined up or she did anyway um but the feeling of finding them lumps initially was like I'd been kicked in the stomach yeah 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 something it's just a horrible horrible feeling horrible and then did you feel in any way helpless to you know, because it was sort of out of your control at that point. Um. Well, before she actually got diagnosed, I mean, there's not much you can do. I think it's just human nature that you've all you always think the worst. You're always going to think the worst. So before she got diagnosed, you know, it was just trying to stay positive. There's no point. In wor- we were trying to tell ourselves that there's no point in worrying about something that you don't know anything about. 
Yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of women do get lumps that are benign, you know, and there's nothing to worry about. That's just the fatty tissue in the breast, and it happens quite often. But unfortunately, sometimes it's not the answers that you want. Mm-hmm. And during this period of time, when you were trying to obviously get the diagnosis, and um, then after Martine got the diagnosis, do you remember feeling like you were able to process your feelings? clearly or did you kind of just go into sort of a bit of autopilot mode where you were just trying to do as much as possible for Martine or do you remember like sitting down up and even going I just don't feel good about you know what's happening with us at the moment yeah well so she was booked in for the Monday um went straight to that appointment and it's funny, a couple of more fr- Martin's friends use that GP there in Randwick. Um, she's very good. Um, so she was straight into Janie, Dr. Janie, you called her. Um, and you can kind of just tell, I was at the appointment, and you could kind of just tell that Janie knew something was up. Um, it, I mean, she's probably been doing it for a long time, so she was kind of used to knowing what she was feeling there. Um, and kind of did go into autopilot, um, but in a way no real time to think about it either which was a massive credit to the healthcare system here mm-hmm. um i'll never forget it but i mean from the monday of finding the lumps i think it was this the same day or the next day it's all kind of it was all kind of super fast but Janie had booked her in for a mammogram and a biopsy on the same day um and an ultrasound as well i think the following day and then when Mar- when I was in the room with Martine, um, when she got the results, you know, it felt like an out of body experience. Like it, mm. it was like something you would see in a movie or a documentary. You're watching it, and someone's telling you you have cancer. You know, it's not something you wish on anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but it felt helpless. Um, I think for the first two days, it was kind of in shock. And what I kept doing was just inviting our friends around, especially Martine's friends, because for the first time in my life, I could speak. I think yeah. that's how people knew there was something wrong with me. Um, but after that two days, it was like you hadn't a chance to breathe. And again, it's credit to the healthcare system here. And I mean, mm-hmm. we only are public patients, but as soon as she was diagnosed, she was booked into the uh, the breast center there and um the Prince of Wales for the following week like and from then on you just didn't have then on until kind of three weeks ago we didn't have time to think so it's kind of the dust is only kind of settling now and yeah I did feel a lot really helpless in the beginning but autopilot kicked in it was kind of like you have a choice of fight or flight and the, mm-hmm. we'll both together just choose to fight it you know mm-hmm. and in terms of obviously you wanted to be there for Martine did she kind of give you an idea of what kind of support would she would find helpful at certain periods of time or did you just have a sort of innate understanding of you know you know say you were at home of an evening and she was really tired like would you help her out with different things like did you have or did you have to ask her you know what's what's going to be helpful for you right now uh, yeah, Martine wouldn't really be shy of 
asking for help. I think we're together. We're together over eight years, so we kind of mm-hmm. know each know each other inside out. Um, so I can I can understand. I can kind of you just know. Yeah. If she's feeling good, if she's feeling bad, if she's tired, if she's emotional, if she needs help with something else, you know, like it's just that's that's just connection you have in a, in a mm-hmm. relationship. You know, you kind of just know. Um, so I was. Yeah, I was kind of good at understanding when she needed the help, or she just wanted ears to listen, or she wanted me to. Oh, it was sad for her, but you know, I was washing her in the shower. I was doing everything, everything she needed done, that she wasn't able to do. I was just there and I was ready to help. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I just had to listen and I had to let her. When she was sad, you kind of just have to let them be sad. You can't be positive all the time. You just have to let them feel the emotions that they're feeling, you know. Absolutely. Um, I, I um, think that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, you can't kind of just pull the carpet over how you're feeling. If you're feeling sad, and especially if you feel like you want to cry or, you know, scream, just let them do it because what's, there's no point in holding it in. And I think after you kind of let how you're feeling out, that you, you have that release mm-hmm. and you will feel a lot better. Mm-hmm. Actually, I might bring Emer in on this point because that's something I think that we hear a lot of, um, especially, you know, from people who are close to us. Obviously, they want us to be positive and they want us to, um, you know, think of the best possible scenario or the outcome. But sometimes you don't need that false positivity reinforced because it kind of steers you away from sometimes the reality of a situation. So, Emer, in terms of you know, supporting someone, how can we be, I suppose, realistic without, you know, trying to be overly positive with someone? Well, I suppose, I suppose in the case with, you know, when Sean's talking about himself and Martin, um, it sounds like, you know, both of them were quite positive in terms of what needed to be done. And maybe I've interpreted that wrong. But allowing, you know, Martine to have that space to express her emotions. And just as I was listening to that, I was just thinking, kind of, where was Sean getting that time to kind of have a vent, have a frustration? <laughs> I don't know, whatever it might be, have a cry, have a whinge, have a laugh, whatever it might be. Maybe because I suppose trying to protect Martine, but equally, how were you managing to do that? And I suppose I'm, I'm asking the question, but then I'm answering a different one. Um, but I, I don't know, I'll, I'll come back to your Zuna, but I suppose, I just was wondering, Sean, if you found a way of doing that. Yeah, well, I always, looking back on the last, since the diagnosis, I think a lot of our good lifestyle choices kind of stood by us, um, and especially Martin's recovery and overcoming the, the disease. Um, but like I just tried to continue my routine as much as possible. And when Martine felt like it, she did as well. Um, we love having a coffee at sunrise. Like people think we're nuts, but we're up from like 5 a.m. every day. We go down and watch the sunrise. We'll walk the, we'll have a dog. Um, we'll walk the dog. Um it was during a pandemic. Um, so unfortunately the gyms were closed and the gym's kind of my release. I feel even if it's just a social thing, um, of seeing people in the gym and talking to them, just doing a bit of exercise is what helps a lot. Like it's, it's very, very underestimated the power of some exercise, whether it's 15 minutes or 30 minutes, but um, the gyms were closed at the time. So I tried to do as much outdoor workouts as possible. 
that wasn't much, but um, the small things really helped, you know, just trying to, trying to go for a walk when I needed it. Um, I do a lot, a few people will know, I, I do photography and a lot of my, uh, half of my years spent wheel watching. So for the majority, a lot of the time I would just sit in the cliffs and it's like meditation to me. So mm-hmm. I just tried to keep the, the things that I enjoyed the most. Um, and have an eating good food, drinking plenty of water, you know, there's, and that's all stuff that we were used to anyway. So I feel like the good principles we had in our day-to-day life kind of, if as long as you continue them and try your best when you can, it'll, it kind of gives you that release that you need. Um, and talking to friends, initially I couldn't talk to family. I felt, I don't know, I felt I had a weird feeling for the first time that I couldn't kind of open up to them. Um, and my mum's rang me every day since I've lived here so I knew there was something wrong with me but over time that got easy but speaking to your friends and family is another release you know uh, would they say a, sh- a problem shared is a problem half mm-hmm. so there's no shame in talking to somebody and asking for help if you need it and we got help that I can never thank enough people for like so yeah uh, no, don't be afraid to ask for help mm-hmm mm-hmm and it's like a double whammy when you had COVID, you know, yeah. that was kind of restricting what you would be able to do if, if it was otherwise, whatever, a normal kind of world. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's hard to believe because I mean, a lot of people just struggled with COVID, which when we look back, <laughs> like gee, a cancer <laughs> diagnosis on COVID and I had to stick me in laws for eight months. <laughs> this has been recorded, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God they're back in Ireland now anyway. So that's right, Sean. Um, Martine's parents came over for an extended period of time. And, and when they came, did you have a bit of a sense of, you know, a, a bit of relief that, you know, they could share in that support, that immediate support with you? Ah, uh, yeah, there's no doubt about it. Like, it's... I mean, that was another fight in itself, getting them here. Obviously, everybody knows the time during COVID, world travel had stopped. So we had to fight for an exemption to get them here. Um, exemptions and then visas and then flights, which cost were astronomical. Like it was, that was another fight in itself, which nobody should have to go through. Like the stress, like you're already having the most stressful time in your life. And it's multiplied times a thousand, you know. Um, but having them here... Martine needed them as much as they needed to be with her. You know, it wouldn't be nice for your parents to ha- have a, a, a child with a cancer diagnosis on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure at the time when Martine was sick and got the diagnosis, I mean, Ireland's halfway across the world, but it felt like another galaxy away. You know, you felt a lot further from home. So having them together for both their sakes was uh, really good. And when I needed the break, when I needed to go for a walk, listen to a podcast, you know, exercise. Mm-hmm. Trees and Jim could do the dishes. Family's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. everything. So you mentioned that you know, up until three weeks ago, you, you and Martine hadn't really had a chance to to think with, with everything that was going on. So, how are you feeling now? Yeah, well, Martine had her. During the whole process, Martine went through the diagnosis. She went through. IVF, she had um, the operations, she went through chemo, radiation. So, and then during that all, she found out that she had the BRCA2 gene, which 
is a gene mutation that's passed on from one of your parents. So mm -hmm. she found out she has the BRCA2 gene, which was passed on from her mom. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that was another thing in itself as well. Uh, and then, up, which goes on to the reason why I'd only kind of all finished three weeks ago, was Martine had her final surgery, which is preventative on her left breast. Um, she had a, re a reconstruction, um, which brings her chances of getting breast cancer in that breast to, I think, around 1%. So, you know, it's preventative surgery. Um, so kind of all the major stuff's over with. Obviously, Martine's on treatment for the next five or 10 years, which is something that you kind of have to come to terms with as well. But um, I'm doing good now. I think, I think I could have done a little bit more in terms of maybe journaling there's a lot of practices i wish i had done at the time and martine actually done them she wrote she wrote a book nearly every night but things like meditation and journaling things that are kind of i'm trying to do now and uh speak to professionals you know i feel like i just didn't i just didn't have a minute but at the same time i never felt that it was really on the edge of struggling like i always felt like i was looking after myself as much as i was looking after martine mm -hmm. but kind of now that it's settled i feel that i kind of can reflect on it all and try and move on and find peace for the future. Mm -hmm. Great, great. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. No worries. Um, Emer, obviously what Sean and Martine experienced is a very difficult but far too common occurrence. As a carer, how can we let our loved one know that we are there for them without putting too many expectations of our own expectations on them in terms of what we what we expect that they might do or yeah I suppose you know we might have our own view or vision or um you know understanding of what the next steps might be um but how can we let them be the kind of designer of their, their future path well, I suppose it literally is what you said. I suppose depending on what they're, what is going on for them or what they're they're going through, it it is kind of being open, communicating with them, checking in with them. But I suppose you potentially you're you're not their professional kind of carer. You're not their doctor. You're you know you're not that person. So it's letting them kind of lead their own kind of their treatment plan or whatever it might be so that you're supporting them at whatever they're doing whatever mm -hmm. they might need whether it's a lift somewhere or they need to talk about something that happened to them that day but you're not necessarily telling them what, what you think is your opinion um unless they're specifically asking for it um but making sure that you know that you're just consistently, even if it's like just once a week or every couple of days, you're just sending maybe a text message, you're sent, you know, having a phone call, even if you can't physically be there with somebody, mm -hmm. um, that you're letting them know that you're there, they can kind of reach out to you if they need your help um, without them necessarily always having to ask for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Sean obviously touched on um, sort of looking after yourself as a carer, you know, through that, um, whether it be through through you know physical exercise or or journaling, when all of the that is going on though, and and there's 
an element of stress and there's an element of anxiety and worry. It might be difficult for, for people to step back and say, hold on, I need to I need to look after myself here because you're so wrapped up in everything that might be going on. So how can we train ourselves to, to sort of take a, a breath and go, hold on, am I able to be the supporter that they need me to be if I'm not feeling too good myself? And I suppose it kind of is the main thing in terms of people, the carer getting, like making sure that they're looking after their own self-care and having their own boundaries as to what they're able to offer and having their own limitations as to what does that entail? Um, because I suppose the unfortunate thing is people get concerned, like if I don't, if I don't do it, what's going to happen to this person that I'm caring for or looking after? But equally, if they burn themselves out, there is not going to be that support for that person. So making sure, and you know, um, when Sean was talking about, like even during COVID, that they were keeping to those really good routines, which is fantastic that if people can keep to those, the things that kind of make them well, so that they're looking after themselves, whether it's exercise or their own socializing. But I do think from the very beginning, you, depending on whether it's a friend, a partner, a parent, whatever it might be, you kind of have to set realistic expectations for yourself because, you know, it's not necessarily something that's going to change in a week, depending on what something, whatever it is for the person, it could go on for months, it could go on for years. And it's not necessarily possible that you can just stop your life and completely commit to looking after this person because there might be, you know, other demands being put on you. Like if you have children or you have a job, and potentially if your partner is now out of a job, how do you support each other and trying to be the kind of full-time kind of care person looking after that person, but yet I need to be in work mode from nine to five, but equally having got up to do these things or bring somebody to appointments or go to the chemist or whatever it might be. Um, and it's that conflicting kind of piece to how do I manage it all and not being able to manage it all. Um, so making sure that, you know, using the supports that are available, like if people are offering to bring somebody, you know, to an appointment or collect somebody or drop off some groceries or drop off a dinner or whatever it is, accept it, <laughs> you know, allow those people because they want to help as well and they may not know how to, but being accepting of that meaning, okay, great, we don't have to cook dinner tonight or somebody's yeah. going to drop the kids somewhere or whatever it might be. But equally, I think potentially more maybe with like friendships or maybe, you know, um, people that are further away is being realistic with, am I able to have phone calls with them every single day? And is it, you know, maybe is it an hour? Is it two hours? Or do I realistically have to think after a little while, am I going to be able to continue to do that? Does it have to be a text message kind of saying I'm checking in or maybe every Sunday we'll have a chat on the phone or we'll meet up once a week for maybe a walk and a chat and kind of see how things are going without over committing yourself because again then you lead to burnout i can relate to some of that Emer, uh, just on two things you touched on i think initially you can like in the short term you can kind of take yourself away like a change of scenery helps like as much as we spend every morning a kuji and if martine was able to make it out in the mornings um but you weren't just feeling up to it we just used to go to Maroubra and sit at South Maroubra, a different beach. You wouldn't see anybody, you know, and you just have time to yourself. 
So like taking yourself away, if you are feeling anxious or you're mm -hmm. just not in the mood and you just want your own space, just taking yourself out of your usual kind of area can help as well. Um, and then you touched on allowing people to help you. Like we, I would never have asked for help. Like I, I don't think, I, I can't even accept help really. Like I like to do, we're very independent. I like to do everything myself, but like there was days people were just messaging us. Do you want food? Do you want your car cleaned? Do you want us to go and get something? Like, do you want the dog walked? And like, there was days we were just opening the door and there was food, oh. homemade soups, fresh juices, like Sunday dinners, like you name it, it was there. And just accepting help because it makes your life easier and them small little tasks just make your day so much better and they help you more than you can even think. Absolutely. And also they help the person that wants to support. Yeah, yeah, no um, doubt about it. It stops them kind of feeling like useless and helpless in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a testament to the community, isn't it? How, how they rally around. Oh, no doubt about it. I'll never forget it. Yeah. Unbelievable. Okay, guys, um, so I'd like to open up um, the discussion to members of the audience. Um, you can either pop a question into the chat box or you are also welcome to turn off your mic and come on and ask it. Um, okay, we've got a question here for Emer. Um, Emer, do you know if there are any external bodies that support the carer only? I feel like the patient gets a lot of support, but the carer is often forgotten. So kind of not generically offhand, like depending on what's going on for somebody, usually whether it's um, a physical illness, they should offer you if it's in a, a hospital setting, they would generally have a carer support group. Um, or I suppose with kind of mental health, um, like a lot of the Beyond Blue, all of those kind of ones, um, all have carers kind of support. Um, but it, I suppose it just depends on what's going on for somebody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But generally there is, particularly with mental health, um, they're absolutely in any of the areas. There are supports, whether they're online or not. Um, it just it's trying to maybe refine where that might be or what the actual support is that depending on what's going on for that person okay so on the, on the sorry um on the on the short term i found that a lot of a lot of people have heard of georgie crawford she went through the breast cancer diagnosis herself but she actually has a really good podcast and on the short term that's obviously on the non-professional side of things that's where i found a lot of comfort in um, people sharing their stories of the trauma and crises they were in. Um, and she's actually interviewed her own husband um, through mm -hmm. being a partner of her treatment. So there is good podcasts that you can listen to to kind of find some knowledge and gain a, give, mm -hmm. gain a bit of comfort in whatever you're going through. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that was more directed to the breast cancer side of things, but she does have a lot of good other um, guests on her podcast who went through like uh, grief and you know, a lot of different other um, things will come across in life. And we've just had someone else come in and say that um, Carer Gateway is fantastic. Um, so I think that must be a service available to, 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 to carers because carers can be such a broad 
thing, you know, um, and a huge population, a huge percentage of the population is in a caring role. So um, hopefully that there's some there's some good support to be found out there. I um, have another question through here. Um, as expats, um, sometimes it can be very difficult to support someone in person, especially if our family is back in Ireland. Do you have any um, advice for uh, someone trying to support a person um, from a distance? I suppose being realistic with what you can actually offer. Um, and again, it, it's kind of situation specific, but is it something that's quite a short term illness or something like that? Whereas if it's something more longer term, potentially it's a parent that has a long term illness or potentially maybe a dementia or something like that, where it's not going to change, you know, in a couple of weeks, potentially might progressively get worse. Um, I suppose it's trying to think about what you can feasibly manage. Um, so trying to think about, okay, what, what can I offer? Is it in terms of communicating? Is it financially? Can I offer respite if I was to go home? Um, also kind of thinking about if there's other siblings that are at home um, that potentially they may be doing a lot of the, the kind of the face-to-face -face or maybe having to do a lot of the kind of on the ground, taking to appointments, whatever those might be. And they may need a little bit of that respite if you're coming home. It might be, well, actually, the two weeks are going to be spent with mum or dad rather than maybe traveling around and seeing everybody. And yes. giving, I suppose, also making sure that if there's um, a sibling that is doing kind of the kind of majority share of maybe being there, that they get an opportunity where it's like, if I'm coming home for two weeks, then you are not coming near the house as much as possible. Um, that you're actually taking that time to look after yourself, maybe go on a holiday because somebody is there with mom or dad, mm. that you're spending time with your family or whatever it might be. But I suppose being realistic that you're not necessarily going to uproot your life to kind of move home. Mm -hmm. um, and what does that look like? Am I kind of committing that I'm going to go home once a year, maybe on my own, if I have a family, am I going to go home twice a year, the second time with the family? What does that maybe look like? Um, and sometimes it might even just be having a phone call with maybe a sibling and allowing them to have a bit of a vent um, about what's going on. Because I suppose sometimes we kind of forget what the, the person caring for the person going through the illness is going through. So there might be like resentment or anger or frustration. And, you know, it's just building up because they're beginning to burn out um, yeah. and just giving that person that opportunity. I think that's great, yeah, because I think a lot of people might find, or, you know, find themselves in that type of situation, especially if you've got a family of your own over here, um, it, it may not be as easy just to jump on the next flight and, and you know, spend a long period of time there, so but that's great, thank you so much, Emer. Um, another question here for Sean, um, a lot of people do not identify with the label of being a carer. Did you find that difficult to see yourself in that role so young? Yeah, yeah. it's not something um, I say I never dreamed of and not, not something I ever imagined. Um, you know, you have all these, you always have all, have all these happy thoughts in your head of things that you want to happen in your life, but you would never, ever imagine this happening to you. Mm -hmm. um, again, Martin's only 29 and I'm 
33 now, I think. Um, but yeah, I never imagined being a curler at this age. But I just think you don't have choices. These things happen and you just have to deal with it one way or another um, mm-hmm. and get on with it. Um, nobody, like People are going to feel sorry for you, but you can't really sit and feel sorry for yourself. And I just have to pick yourself up and get on with things as best as you can. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, the days move fast and you just want to get over it as quickly as you can. Mm-hmm. Like take them one day at a time. But no, I never imagined having to be a car, you know. I watched my granda going through this disease and having to watch my mum look after him in a way. But mm-hmm. yeah, I never, never imagined at this age. You always think of mm-hmm. it as an old person's kind of thing. Or maybe I just am old now. not quite no um and another question for emer um what are emer's top three things she recommends for a carer um good uh let me think um self-care um boundaries Mm. and then probably just support support for themselves as well so whether that means seeking professional support having other people around and equally there may be other supports for the person that's going through whatever potentially illness or situation that they're going through I think boundaries is such a key word I think and sometimes it can have negative connotations like there's a bit of selfishness in there but it, it can actually be quite kind to you and the person that you might be setting boundaries with because both of you know exactly you know where you're coming from and where you stand and um yeah I think it's so important to have healthy boundaries with 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 people that you know um who are in our lives so I think that that's a really good one um they just make sure that it's like setting up for success yeah because otherwise when when the boundaries start to get blurred or you haven't set the boundaries which is yes. usually what happens um that that's when people start to burn out or they start to kind yes. of resent the person a little bit and depending on what it is they might yes. be getting frustrated and it's like why am I having to do all of this yet they potentially have kind of got themselves into that situation where Absolutely. it's trying to think about okay how do I kind of provide support but again, within the limitations of what can I actually offer this person? And sometimes people end up getting so burnt out that they end up kind of avoiding somebody or trying to cut them off. And unfortunately, then when they've been the only support for somebody, it's it's like even more upsetting because they were that go-to person yes. and now they have nobody. So it's when you're, when I'm talking kind of about boundaries, it's not kind of like always stepping back, but it's saying, every now and then I might need time away. So who else can we look for, for support? Are there other friends that have been trying to come and see you that we can, you know, get in if I'm going away to something for the weekend or I'm out for the day, is there somebody else that might want to come and visit you and we'll, we'll reach out to them rather than it being completely on me. And that's unfortunately when it starts to unravel for people. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like healthy, a healthy conversation. Absolutely. Um, and last question uh, for Sean. Um, what, if anything, have you learned about yourself looking back? Or maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you, you haven't processed it all yet. But there's a lot. Um, there's a lot you can kind of learn from the experience. I just think a massive thing that you can learn 
like as an individual and as a couple is that we're very very strong yeah. like um martin's incredibly strong uh women are incredibly strong like strong isn't just physical like she like we've just learned that we're very strong together and very strong as individuals um mm-hmm. um and what was the question what have i learned what have i learned about myself um kind of that i should be i think we all kind of need to be more proactive instead of reactive like it's it's hard i feel i mentioned it earlier that we have good principles in place before the diagnosis but i think a lot of us can kind of start to be a bit more proactive whether it's just your mental health whether you're not even suffering is just going to speak to a professional because i think the things that you can learn there's so much we can learn about our mental health especially is that when a time of crisis comes you'll have the tools to support yourself yes um and i feel like i was pretty strong going through it but you know i think thinking about friends that maybe would have to go through it or family members that Mm -hmm. You can definitely add a lot more value to your life and like kind of information to deal with something that may happen in the future. Um, yeah, I've learned, uh, there's a lot of have learned from it. Uh, the cliche one is that the health, health is your wealth and like every day is a gift, you know, you just have to appreciate every day and try and be as happy as you can. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah, I've learned a lot learned a lot but as you say i probably will deal with it a bit better over the next mm-hmm. lot of months mm-hmm. yeah and i know i said that was the last question but we've just had another one come in and and that will be the end for <laughs> the evening um for sean is it difficult to separate yourself from the carer role when you see others going through their own struggles be that the struggles of other friends or even of strangers in the wider community um it's kind of very selective i think you have to i think for me personally i love helping people you know a big part of your i think a big part of mental health is helping other people it makes you feel better so i get a lot of joy out of helping other people yeah but at the same time you have to know your own limits um i get a like a few people on the call here will know that there's a men's mental health group that was started a while ago. Um, and you and it's not a place where you go and talk about your problems. It's a place to go and make friends. But, you know, you have to have your, like Emer said previously, you have to have your boundaries. You can't take on everybody's problems, especially mm-hmm. if you're dealing with your own. I mean, everybody has problems. Nobody's life's perfect, but everybody deals with them in different ways. So you kind of have to have your boundaries set. So... Yeah, you're not taking everybody's problems on um, and look after yourself, more importantly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you both so, so much. Um, I know I certainly gained a lot from that. Um, I think you both um, had some really good insights um, that people will be able to, to learn from. So thank you, Emer. Um, and Sean and Martine, I wish you all the best and all the happiness. Um, Thanks very much. And um, thank you so much for, for sharing with us tonight. And thank you for everyone for tuning in. And we will see you in December. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in everyone and we hope that you enjoyed the episode. 
please don't forget to rate and review so more people can find us. Until next month.